0: We've been reading through the whole book of Daniel, and we've been doing it for a couple of reasons. One, it is great to hear the Word of God being read. Uh, and secondly, we're covering uh, a whole chapter each time we do a message, and so it's good for you to have the direction of where we're headed so that uh, when I just drop in here or there, at least you've got the context of the story. As I indicated uh, um, just a couple of minutes earlier, this chapter is a unique chapter in the Bible. It's written by a king. It's uh, his sort of account of how he came to honor and praise and bless the name of Jesus. It's an open letter of thanksgiving. Um, Now, you may be familiar with open letters. From time to time, we see them. Uh, They show up in the editorial page of the newspapers. Uh, Sometimes they are broadcast on a news network. An open letter is um, written for a couple of reasons. One, sometimes people write an open letter as a way of making an issue public that they can't resolve with somebody in private. And so the person won't come to uh, sort of a consensus with them. And so they say, fine, I'm going to make this issue public. Uh, Another reason, though, people write open letters is just to make a certain thing known or to get their story out there. Well, that happens to be, I think, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's inviting the public in on what has happened in his life. And he begins his open letter by simply addressing the people that he's writing to. And notice the audience. He says, to the people... The nations and men of every language who live in all the world. This is an incredibly expansive um, a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar is writing. And he wants them to hear what the Most High God has done for them. I think it's important that we give testimony from time to time of what God is doing in our life. And here now is this king wanting the whole world to know what God has done for him. And he puts it this way: he says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. This is his personal testimony of what God had done for him, how God had revealed himself to him, how God had squashed his rebellious pride, how God had put him low in order to open his eyes to see who God really was. In chapter 2 of the Bible, when uh, God is getting through to Nebuchadnezzar, we simply find there that God is a God who reveals. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Uh, He wants to know the interpretation. Nobody can tell him the dream or the interpretation except Daniel who prays to God and asks God to give him the dream and the interpretation. So in chapter 2, we have a God who reveals. In chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar setting up this massive golden idol and he asks all the people that are gathered to bow flat on their faces to worship the idol. Three young boys stay standing. He says, listen, if you don't bow down before my idol, I'm going to throw you all in the furnace. And what God is able to deliver you from my hand? Well, you know the story. They were thrown into the furnace, and they were delivered. And so in chapter 3, we learn about a God who rescues. And now in chapter 4, we have a king who is still exercising rebellion against God. And at the end of the story, the king is humbled. He recognizes God. He submits to the sovereignty of God. And so in chapter 4, we have a God who rules And so Nebuchadnezzar is coming to realize these things, and the end of his journey, he sums it up this way in, in, uh, at the end of uh, verse three. He says this: that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's the summary. The rest of chapter four tells us how he came to that conclusion that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. There's really just three ways that I want us to look at this chapter. and We're just going to jump into various spots along the way. Uh, The first is uh, simply this, and I've changed the language of it as I've been thinking through the day. And I've just called the first point God's gift, or we might say gifts, to a rebellious king. Nebuchadnezzar was rebelling against God. And we'll see a fascinating contrast when we come to chapter 5 and we see Belshazzar's rebellion against God. And they respond differently to God who reveals himself to them. But nonetheless, here we have a king who is rebelling against God. And God, in his mercy, though, gives him a few gifts. At first glance, we might not think that Nebuchadnezzar is in such a bad state. For he says that uh, he was at ease in his house and he was prospering in his palace. It seems like possibly this is near the end of his reign. He's come to a point in his life where he's sitting back and he's checking his bank accounts every day and he's thinking, man, I've really done good for myself. He's looking at his servants. He's looking at his palace. He's looking at his kingdom. He's realizing that it expands to the edges of the world. And so he's at ease. And he is uh, just enjoying life. You come to a middle part of chapter 4 and it seems like he asked himself a question. And it says, uh, because it says, the king answered and said, He's not talking to anyone. It seems like the question he asked himself was along the lines of, this is a pretty amazing city. And I've accomplished quite a bit. I wonder where this all came from. And his answer was this. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? See, rather than being thankful, this man was full of pride. Rather than acknowledging that maybe God had a place in his life and that God was the one that had given him all those gifts, Nebuchadnezzar sat back, patted himself on the back, and said, my, what a smart guy that I am. Look at all the stuff that I've been able to accumulate. He continued to rebel against God. And he would not acknowledge that God was king of his life. And so God, in his mercy... And this is what God is, because rebellious people really don't deserve a thing, but God in his mercy gave Nebuchadnezzar a bunch of gifts, and I've got at least three gifts that I think God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. The first is the dream, and we read about the dream, that Nebuchadnezzar in the night was sleeping, and uh, he had this incredible dream of this massive tree whose branches spread to the heavens and to the ends of the earth, that... Uh, uh, mankind found shade and comfort in it that all the beasts of the field um, found security and safety and provision in it and it was uh, uh, just this incredible dream but along the way this dream as we read uh, uh, a watcher came down from heaven and hacked the tree off and just left a stump with the roots in the ground and as we realized that when he had this dream it terrified him it's an amazing side note just Uh, as we're thinking about the reign and rule of God, and this is what Daniel is really about, and we've been talking about the various ways that God reigns and rules, but here's an example of God reigning and ruling in a person's mind. Because God is able to give a man or a woman a dream. God is able to, 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 to pattern the thoughts of an individual so that they think the things that God wants them to think. And in fact, we see God's power over the mind in verse uh, 16 there where the uh, the judgment against him is let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him god has power even over our minds but nonetheless daniel has this or uh, nebuchadnezzar has this pretty incredible dream and as he's working through this dream he calls together which is strange to me he calls together all his um, uh, magicians and his diviners and the Chaldeans. And if you've been following with us, he's done that time and time again, and every single time they fail him. They are unable to tell him what he wants to know. They can't tell him the dream. They can't tell him the interpretation. They, Here we have another dream. They can't tell him what it is. And I wonder sometimes if they won't tell him what it is. Because even if you or I were to get this dream and were to somebody tell us and say, What do you think this means? I think most of us could probably come up at least with this and say it's not very good news. And I wonder if his uh, uh, advisors were chicken to tell him the, the news. And so we read, though, twice that his um, uh, advisors were unable to tell him what his dream meant. And so he turns to Daniel. And he asks Daniel what the dream meant because he recognized that there was something different about Daniel. That there was in Daniel, he says, the spirit of the gods. And so the first gift that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar was this dream. And this dream about what would happen in his life. About what was to come because of the way that he was behaving. The second thing though, the second gift that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar is a man. It's Daniel. And I wonder if we, at the end of tonight, if you think about Daniel and maybe you say, God, I wish you would give me a Daniel in my life. I think every individual needs a person like Daniel in their life. And you might find out why as we come through this. Daniel was the real deal. Daniel was the best kind of a friend that anyone could have. Daniel was loyal and faithful in his service to the king. I suspect that if you took Daniel aside in private and said, Daniel, tell me about the king, what's he like? You know, Did you just serve him because you have to? And I bet you Daniel would say, no, no, I love the king. And I serve him because God has placed me in a position where I can serve him. Daniel had an incredible attitude towards the king. He had, he had compassion on the king. When he begins to realize what the dream meant, the Bible tells us that Daniel was also alarmed. And his response to the king was, Oh, king, if only this dream was for your enemies. If only this dream was for people who hate you. He was so compassionate towards the king. So loving towards the king. He was dismayed because he understood what this dream went. My Lord, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. You see, in Daniel, there was no delight in the message that he had to give to the king. And as I was thinking about this and was kind of rolling it over in my head, I thought it's easy to kind of gloss over these verses and, and miss maybe something for all of us to think about. Because all of us here probably are in one way or another in service to people who don't serve God, don't trust God, don't know God, or even in rebellion against God. And I've sometimes chatted with people who have just such a horrible attitude to those who are not Christians that they work for. And they sometimes have a view that somehow um, they are above them, and they don't want to speak kindly of them. They don't want to serve them faithfully. And yet you read through the Bible, you go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and you go to Ephesians chapter 6 and you read there how the Christian is to be submissive to those in authority. How the Christian is to honor those and respect those in authority over them even if they are cruel and mean. It's this attitude that we have that recognizes that whoever is in power over us is there because God put them there. And our responsibility is to have compassion on them and to be of perfect service to them. And to help them out in any way that we can, as God has gifted us to do that. And here we see Daniel as one who speaks the truth in love to this king. Daniel could have had this real attitude about him and says, King, you're a real jerk. You know, and, and God's just going to hammer you. That's what this dream means. God is just going to cut your legs out from under you. But he's gentle and he's compassionate. And he's alarmed that what God is about to bring about in this king's life but god gave him the gift of a daniel somebody who would come into his life and speak truth to him the third thing that i see that god gave this rebellious king was a word it's a bit of an unsolicited word and it's a word that took incredible courage And it's a word that comes from Daniel to the king. And it's rooted in the character of God. And I believe it's rooted in Daniel's love for the king. It must have taken incredible courage for him to say this to the king. But you find it in verse 27. After he's given the interpretation of the dream. After he's told him what's about to happen. Daniel says to him, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. That's an incredible gift of God to the king. Because through Daniel, God is saying to the king, This is the issue, king. It's your sin. Your pride has made you um, pompous. Your pride has made you unwilling to submit to me. Your pride and your riches have blinded your eyes to those who are poor and impoverished. After all, how much gold would have been in that idol that was nine feet tall and nine feet wide, even if it was just coated with gold, let alone made out of pure gold. And God is putting his finger on the issue with the king that he was living unrighteously, And he was ignoring the needs of those around him. He was a rebellious king because he's rebelling against God's way in his life. Nebuchadnezzar then was one who had received incredible privilege as a rebel. God could have left him alone, but God in his mercy gave him a revelation or a dream. God in his mercy gave him a man. God in his mercy gave him an admonition. God in his mercy would give him opportunity. Twelve months in which to turn from his wicked ways and to submit to God. These are gifts that God gave to this rebellious king. I was thinking about this idea of gifts. And we for 23, 24 years here in the church have um, done Bethlehem Walk. And one of the ways that we have described Bethlehem Walk is a gift to our community. And it really has been an incredible gift to our community. It's been a way in which we have been able to open our doors to um, tens of thousands of people over those 23 years and introduce them to the story of Christmas and to Christ. And it has been our gift to the community. As I was thinking about that, though, I thought, what an incredible gift it would be to our community if all of you here tonight who name the name of the Lord would be like Daniel. If as you went out to work for your bosses or to be in your classrooms or to listen to your teachers or to, to, to be uh, in your home under the, the authority of your parents and they, they might be those who don't know God and they might be those who don't love God but you love them and you serve them and you have compassion to them and when the opportunity is right you tell them what it is that is causing their trouble as they're separated from God because of their sin. I can't think of a better gift That you or I could be to our community than to be men and women with the same kind of heart and attitude as Daniel had to King Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, not only was God giving mercy and gifts to a rebellious king, but God was making one big point to a rebellious world. And that point is made in three different ways in the text. Um, Today, if you were to look at my notes here, you would find in my notes um, various ways in which I indicate that I want to emphasize something or that something is important. And so I'll have some stuff in bold, I'll have some stuff in red, I'll have some stuff underlined, I'll have some stuff in italicis, I'll have stuff in my, the margins of my notes and I've got lines and circles all around it and I'll put stars beside it because those are things that I think are important and I want to make the point. But how do you make a point in the days before you had computers and you can do all that kind of stuff? Well, in the Bible days, they made the point through repetition. And if you repeated something, that meant that it was important. Well, there's a particular theme that is um, made uh, or or repeated three times in Daniel chapter 4. And I believe it's the point that God is trying to make not only to Nebuchadnezzar, but to you and I. I'll read all three of them and then we'll come back and look at the one that's the largest. The first one is in verse 17. And there uh, Daniel says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. And this is it, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it over the lowliest of men. And then you come over to verse 28 and the same point is made that um, for seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. And then you come again over to verse 32 and it's the same point that's made again. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. That is God's big point To a rebellious world. Nebuchadnezzar should have got that point by now. God had made it again and again and again in his life. Through chapter two and the dream and the interpretation, through chapter three and this incredible rescue, and now he needs to make it again. And as we come to chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar tells us how he made a terrible mistake. And his mistake was that he was unwilling to listen to God. He was unwilling to accept the truth about God. He was unwilling to admit that God did in fact reign over the whole earth, that God in fact was more powerful than him, and that God in fact had an enduring kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar's was a temporal kingdom and that God had put him there. And so God needs to repeat this point again and again to him. Let's break down verse 17 just very briefly, but phrase by phrase, five or six phrases, that as God speaks or as the, uh, Daniel um, talks about the dream and the interpretation, part of it is simply this, that you might know, that the living might know. I, I think that's an incredibly important phrase, that the living might know. See, God is a God who is concerned about the living. God is a God who is involved in those who have breath in their lungs. God is concerned with getting across to you and I who live today what He's like and how He reigns and how He rules in this world. God is active and involved in this world amongst the living, revealing Himself to us. I will tell you, it is far too late to consider the sovereignty of God when you don't have breath in your lungs. At that point, your eternal destiny is sealed. But until that point, you and I have an opportunity to come to understand this particular truth that God is sovereign and God makes that known to the living. And then the second point is that the living may know that the Most High rules. That's, that's um, what Daniel is saying, or what, what the dream is saying, is that um, Nebuchadnezzar needs to come to understand that Israel's God, the God who has revealed Himself in the Bible, is the Most High God. And that He, not past, not future, but presently, He rules. God's rule is an active involvement in the world in which we live. Now, we might think it's rather chaotic and you might watch the news or read the newspapers and think, well, there's no evidence that I can see that anybody's in control. But I think that if you do look at the world and you do look at history, you can see how God is involved in bringing people up and bringing people down. And in fact, that's what Daniel tells us. The whole book of Daniel is about this interaction of God in the kingdom of men, where in verse 1 it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. There it is that the most high ruling... The king comes to do what he wants to do, but it's it's God's will and God's purpose to give Jehoiakim into his hand. His rule, then, is a present reality. The third phrase is that God rules in the kingdom of men. That's in the world in which you and I live now today. It's not the world of the spirits, although God rules that world as well. But the point that God is making to Nebuchadnezzar is that God doesn't just stand back or sit back on his throne of heaven and let the world go nuts and the strongest survive, the fittest survive, and the weakest get trampled on. No, God is making it clear that he rules the kingdom of men, that he's active in the world of the living. What do we pray? You've heard this many times. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. See, God's rule is not just a heavenly rule. It's an earthly rule. And what God is about right now is he is demonstrating and bringing his rule here to earth. And so the point that god is making to nebuchadnezzar and he's making to us and he's making to this living or to this world in which we live the point is a fairly simple one that the living may know that's you and i who have breath today that the most high rules the kingdom of men the world in which we live our workplaces um, our politics in bc our politics in canada believe it or not the politics in united states that god rules in syria that god rules in north korea That God rules in South Africa. God rules the kingdom of men. And listen to this next phrase. And he gives it to whoever he will. This is really important for us to wrap our heads around these incredible biblical truths. That God directs this world generally and specifically. See, if you are in a position of power today... You might not be like King Nebuchadnezzar, but you might be an owner of a company, or you might be a teacher at school, or you might be a a, a boss who has four or five or six people under you, and you might think, wow, I've really accomplished a lot, and it's by my ingenuity and my skill and my gifts that I've got there, and that may have contributed to that, but in the end of the day, you are there because God has put you there. You are there because of the mercies and the grace and the gift of God that has opened those doors, that has provided those opportunities, that has made it possible for you to get to that position where you are at. And we might think of it this way, that when a new president gets elected, well, let's use Canada, when a new prime minister gets elected in a place like Canada, one of the things they begin to do is fill a whole bunch of positions. And they just make those choices. People might submit their resumes. Some people might not submit a resume. They just might say, I want that person to be in that job. I want that person to be this minister. I want that person to be this representative. Well, in a same way, but with much more authority and much more perfection, God is in heaven directing the affairs of this world. And God is the one who gives positions and authority and reign and rule to whomever he will. And then the final point, which is, a, which is a fascinating point. And it's one that we need to wrap our head around sometimes, but he, he sets it over this, he sets it over the kingdom of men, the lowliest of men. That's simply, I think, a way of saying, and we see it time and time again, that sometimes people that are in positions of authority and power, we think to ourselves, how did they get that?" Sometimes you look at people and you say, well, of course, they got there because of pedigree. They got there because of their experience. They got there because they have been raised and and primed for that position. But a lot of times you look at somebody and they got there and you think that is the most unlikely person to ever be in that position. And if you read biographies from time to time about certain people, you find that many of these great people in the world have been some of the most humblest people with the humblest beginnings ever in the world. They've, they've grown up in poverty. They've maybe only had one parent or they've been orphaned. They, they, they weren't a success at school. Um, but God was just tracking their lives and directing them. And all of a sudden, this person that we might think would never accomplish anything is set by God in one of the most powerful positions in a country or the world. This is the big point that God wants to make, though, to a rebellious world. And the point is, you are not God. The point is you are not king of your life. You are not even king of your world. The point is that God is the one that is reigning and ruling in this land of the living, this world of men and women, that God sets people up, that God sets people down. And the sooner we come to submit to that and recognize that, the better off we'll be. And this is the point that God is making again and again and again in chapter 4 of Daniel. I can't think of anything more important for anyone in this room to wrap their head around and understand than that point. Your life will change when you come to understand and submit to God who rules in heaven and guides and directs your life, it will change the way that you respond to Him. It will change the way that you pray to Him. It will change the way that you pray for others. But secondly, I can't think of something that is more helpful and encouraging when we look at the world around us and we think it's just run amok and it's chaotic to understand, no, it's not. It may look like that, but behind the scenes, God is reigning and ruling. And God can just as easily raise up a new leader as He can take down a new leader. And Nebuchadnezzar will find that out in his life. The final point is simply this. The first is that God is tremendously merciful in giving gifts to a rebellious king. The second point was simply God wants to make a point to a rebellious world that will not acknowledge his kingship and his reign, that he is sovereign. And the third point is simply this. It's sort of one idea. God's mercy to a repentant soul. As I was reading this again and again, it seems almost wrong, but the king is led to expect mercy. He's led to expect mercy. In fact, you read the dream and its interpretation and you almost are um, anticipating that God will be merciful to him. I wish more people would have that understanding of God. There's a lot of people, and some might even be here tonight, and your primary view of God is that God is a God of wrath that God is a mean God, that God is a jealous God, that God is a God of judgment. And while all of those things in the right context are true about God, but we don't very often reflect or we don't reflect as much as we should on the fact that God is a merciful God, that mercy is part of his character and the way that he is towards us. And, There's one little word which packs just an incredible punch. And it's in verse 32, and it's that simple word, until. It's that one word, until, that drives us to expect that God will be merciful to King Nebuchadnezzar if he would but lift his eyes to heaven and acknowledge God. It's fascinating to me that one of the things that God wants to do in Nebuchadnezzar's life is bring him to this conclusion that heaven rules that's just sort of an expansion of the point that we just made earlier um, that God is reigning well he's reigning because heaven rules and I think if you were here a couple of weeks ago I mentioned from chapter two that when uh, the dream and the interpretation um, w- was thrown out by a Nebuchadnezzar and said listen I need people to tell me the dream and the interpretation none of his people could And they all said, what you're asking is something only the gods could do, and the gods never talk to us. And so Daniel comes to the king, and he says, well, uh, give me some time, and I'll come back, and I'll give you the dream and its interpretation. And so as you know, Daniel goes off, and he prays to God. And God gives him the dream and the interpretation. And so Daniel comes before the king, and the king says to him, oh, Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream and the interpretation? Remember what Daniel says? Oh, king, nobody can do that. There's nobody on earth that can... Tell you what you dreamt and give you the interpretation of it. But the next line is so helpful. But there is a God in heaven. And I encourage you to think about that. Maybe to write that on your notebooks at school or put it on your dash or put it on your mirror at home. When when sometimes you're frustrated and you don't have wisdom and it seems like nobody can answer your problem. But there is a God in heaven. We might want to add another phrase to that now and that would simply be heaven rules. Heaven rules. Just an incredible comfort and encouragement that that word is when we finally come to the place where we acknowledge that heaven rules. So we come back to this point, though, this point of mercy. We say, well, how did mercy show up to the king? In what form or what shape did mercy look like? Well, you find that in verse 34. This is the shape that mercy takes to the king. He simply says, and my reason returned to me, And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Do you see the mercy in that verse? Do you see what the mercy is? The mercy is revealed in sort of the logical sequence of this verse as it unfolds before him with that little word and that just gives us a rational, logical sequence. The mercy that is given to the king is his reason. His reason returned to him. His sanity returned to him. And what is the mark of a sane person? What is the mark of a rational person? And I hope you're not offended by this, but the mark of a rational sane person is that they understand that there is a God and he reigns and rules. That that is what sane thinking is. That is what rational thinking is. And the result of rational, reasonable thinking is that we praise and honor and bless God. Because for the first time in his life, Nebuchadnezzar was thinking straight. For the first time in his life, he was reasoning properly. Because he understood his relationship with the God of heaven. His reason returned to him. I was thinking about this in context of Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Romans chapter 1 is a, is a frightening passage of Scripture. The whole chapter, parts of it are good, parts of it are frightening. But in verse 20, um, Paul makes the same point, but in reverse. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And then listen what it says. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, they lost their minds. They lost their ability to think rationally. And then he goes on and he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul is saying is that when you deny that God exists and you deny him in your world, that's insanity. That's not rational. That's not reasonable. It's an incredible gift of mercy when God gives us our senses back and we can praise and honor and bless him. This is Thanksgiving weekend. I don't know how many of you have ever, on a Thanksgiving Sunday, thanked God for your mind. And in a specific way, thank God that God had given you the ability to understand your proper place in this world in relation to God. That you are able to reason properly about your place before God. Because you know there are tens of millions of people around this world who don't think like that. They don't think sanely about their relationship with the God of Heaven. They don't believe He exists, or if He exists, they don't believe He has an influence in His life. If they believe He has influence in lives, they don't believe He has an influence on their life. He's an impotent God who lives away up there and doesn't care. But if you think differently, and you have come to the conclusion that you know that there is a God, you are thinking rationally and reasonably. And that is something to give thanks for today. To go home and say, "Thank you, God, for your mercy. That you didn't leave me in my state of insanity, where I did not recognize that you existed." Martin Luther um, commented on uh, on the shorter catechism. Some of you might be familiar with catechisms. Catechisms are not really used very much today. I, I wish maybe they were used more. But catechisms were used by um, heads of households to teach their household about God and it was just a series of questions that they would go through with their families They'd go around the meals or they'd at when the, in the morning time and they'd ask one of these questions And they give the answer well the first question in the shorter catechism is simply this I Believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth And so Luther asks what does this mean and this is his response? I believe that God has made me in all creatures that has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support my body and life. He defends me against all danger. He guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. I don't know if you noticed in the midst of sort of all the body parts of eyes and ears and all the mundane things of food and clothing and, and the protection against physical and spiritual dangers that he says, and I thank God for my reason and all my senses. What an incredible thing for us to give thanks to God today. I want you to know tonight that you too Can return to your senses if you've been rebelling against God and running from God that God is able to give you your senses back that you too can be like Nebuchadnezzar was and finally come to your knees and recognize that God is sovereign that God's reign includes not only this world but his reign also includes your life and that you are so much better off when you finally come to the point in your life where you say God I submit to your reign and your rule in my life. And I willingly commit to serving you. It's a promise that God gives us in the Word. This is the amazing thing. We can anticipate mercy. You can anticipate that God will be merciful to you and answer that prayer. If you say, God, I am tired of rebelling. I'm tired of looking at myself and, and, and thinking that this is all about me and I recognize that that's not really true, that it can be gone in a minute and I want to submit to you. And God will be merciful to you and he will give you your reason back and then you too can honor and praise and worship God. See, the Bible tells us that we can expect that. God's character tells us that we can expect him to act like that. The written word tells us that we can expect him to act like that. One of the most familiar scriptures in, 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 in all of the Bible, which many of us have heard so many times, is an illustration of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who would, whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have etern- everlasting life. Should you humble yourself before God tonight? then you will also be able to write your open letter of thanksgiving to God and bless and praise and honor his name. Father, we thank you for your word tonight and for the way that uh, even in the life of another individual we can learn. And Father, I really do believe that you are not only teaching Nebuchadnezzar about your reign and rule, but 2,800 years later, you are also wanting us to learn those same lessons. I pray, Father, that there will be nobody here tonight that has to go through the kind of similar circumstances that Nebuchadnezzar went through. But, Father, you would squash our rebellion maybe before it gets to such a terrible state as King Nebuchadnezzar's did. Father, would you help us recognize your gifts to us? Would you help us recognize the point that you want to make to a rebellious world? And will you help us to recognize the simple mercy that comes to us when we reason properly and think correctly about you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.